Hello and welcome to the Leaders with Ambition podcast series, the podcast that delves deep into the careers of some of the most successful leaders working in professional services firms across the UK, US and internationally. We aim to discover the secrets behind their success, the challenges they have overcome and to find out what traits make a successful leader. So hello and welcome to the latest in the Leaders with Ambition podcast series. And today I'm absolutely delighted to welcome my guest, Chris Hines. Now, Chris is currently Chief Marketing and Business Development Officer at Steptoe. And we're going to have a really interesting conversation today, which sees Chris grow up in Wales and how he then progresses to Oxford University. And from there, discovering the world of PR and how he decided that London was definitely the place that he wanted to start his career. Um, lots of learns along the way there as well. So I think one of the things that, that Chris did mention to me was very early on, he was given the advice of really understanding the firm that he was working for and really understand how the business worked, because that's how you could add proper value to the partners. And that's a theme that has continued throughout his career, which you'll be able to share with us today. And also, this is fantastic. I love this bit of, of uh, words of wisdom that lawyers are trained to negotiate and argue. So, you know, do not take this stuff personally. This is this is what they're there to do. And if you if you really do take it personally, you're not going to succeed in a law firm. So bringing you to present day, I'm going to hand over to Chris to now bring his career history to life and talk us through his journey. So, okay. Chris, over to you today. No, thanks, Nikki. It's lovely to have a chat. I uh, really appreciate um, the conversation and things like that. So, if I if I go back to you know those very you know early days, yeah. my background is my father was initially an electrician and then became a property developer doing residential property, and my mother had a variety of different careers. But towards the latter stages, when I was sort of really growing up. She was working as personal assistant in a law firm in South Wales and ended up working for the chair of that firm um, at a time when I was still sort of, sort of in my early stages of my career. So yeah, that's a law, the, a law firm connection already. Yeah, there's a law firm connection. There's a sort of combination there thing of different things, which was working with my father. I'd go out, you know, during my summer holidays and things like that and work with him on the property redevelopment side of things. Yeah. So picked up a number of very interesting skills along the way. Can you build a wall? Is that something that's there that you've got hidden in your arsenal somewhere? I don't think I could build a wall, but I can certainly take one down. <laughs> uh, and then also, you know, learning to sort of put up uh, the plasterboard, doing the painting and redecorating, rewiring uh, some of the properties and things like that, uh, all under supervision. But it was all that kind of work which you don't sort of normally, you know, do as a 16-year-old. You know, not everybody does. And that sort of gave me a very sort of practical approach to to the skills and the work that I was doing and I was also quite fascinated in terms of okay so you know where do I go when I sort of do my degree and all that kind of thing so my approach to college was I was fortunate enough to get into Oxford to study geography I've always liked that uh, particular subject and that sort of interaction between people and place and the environment and the landscape around them and how they all influence each other and I still sort of look at those kind of books today and sort of read through some some things. So that sort of combination of how everything plays 
and interacts is really important and, and fascinating to me. Did you strive to go to Oxford? That's something that, you know, you always, was it talked about at home? Was it something that, you know, you really focused on? Um, going to university was something that we'd spoken about. And when I was sort of having those conversations, you know, at school, in terms of the case of where you're going to apply and all that kind of stuff, a lot of my friends, they were applying to either Oxford or Cambridge. And that was unusual for my school. It was a state school in Cardiff. Didn't really have a, a strong pipeline of its pupils going to, into Oxbridge. But that particular cohort that year just had a really strong set of pupils. And so I thought, well, they're applying. I should apply as well. So I went up. I did the open days. I sort of sat down. I went through the interview processes and everything else like that. I was made a conditional offer, which was great. I was made a conditional offer of three Bs uh, at A level which I suspect for some of the people listening to this podcast, they would consider that to be just outrageously generous <laughs> uh, and not a 4A requirement or something similar. Um, you blew them away in the interview, obviously, Chris. Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and when I got my results, I didn't quite make that 3B requirement. I remember picking up the phone that morning, uh, phoning the college and saying, yeah, hi, I've not made the requirement. And they sort of said, well, well, yeah, we were talking about you this morning. Okay. And they said, yeah, we've decided you should come anyway. So that was, again, it opened up a huge number of doors and opportunities as a result. I really enjoyed my time there. And, you know, I met some really fantastic, smart people who you're able to sort of just really get on with and engage with. So it was a really sort of pivotal moment in my development and in my own career. That's great. And you also uh, were chair of a society as well, weren't you, when you were at Oxford, which again, really, I think, helped to shape you and what you wanted to do moving forward. Oh, yes. So I'm not even sure it exists even more anymore. But the across a lot of universities at that point in time was something called the Student Industrial Society, which was attached to the Industrial Society based, uh, I think, down in Piccadilly. And the the remit of that organisation was to encourage greater understanding and cooperation and engagement between uh, the world of work and the population at large. And the way that that manifested itself at the university level was for there to be these little student societies that would then engage with business to try and bring students and businesses together to sort of understand what each other was up to and perform all of those roles. And at Oxford, it was actually, I think, the second or third largest society because it also played a strong role in careers and bringing recruiters onto into the university and to do various skills training events and visits to companies and all those kind of things. And it was massive. I mean, you had a an annual budget of well over 100,000 at that point, which back um, in the <laughs> mid-1980s was actually quite a lot of money. Yeah, You had a committee that was organising up to 40 events a term of about 35 and running all the sort of the operations side of things to actually maintain a membership as well across the university. So it was a great thing to do. It was fantastic because you then got to deal with the recruitment teams at very large uh, companies, whether it was people like BP or Cadbury or Arthur Anderson or others, and sort of have that liaison with them yeah. about you know what they were doing and you know, what the opportunities were there. So it was great fun to do. It pretty much kills your degree for the term that you're running it because you only get to run it for a term because anything else will destroy your degree completely. 
but it was a great experience and great working with a bunch of people, solving problems, and trying to balance that with your academics as well. And a great network for you. And those networking and network, something that's important to you, isn't it? And it's yeah. you know, that's really probably where your networking skills started. It was always quite fun to have those conversations with the different people, the different institutions, and trying to work out, okay, how can we help you and how can you help us? Yeah. And so that's how you found your first role in PR as well, wasn't it, through one of the graduate training schemes? I did, yeah. And it was interesting because, like most universities, you know, you had the milk round presentations where, you know, they all come on campus and they all the different, you know, the accounting firms, the banks, some of the corporates and the manufacturers, they'd all turn up and do their graduate recruitment sessions. This one was interesting. It was just a little ad I saw in one of the little newsletters that came around at that point in time. This is all pre-digital, so it was yeah. all posted up on a wall somewhere. We just talked about this particular PR agency doing a, a session at one of the hotels and just turn up. So I get there, and it's tiny. There's about 15, 20 of us in the room as students. And this particular agency talked extensively then for the next hour and a half about what it did in terms of helping companies manage their reputation. So how it dealt and advised on crisis issues. And as I was sitting there and listening to it, I started to think, this actually sounds like a lot of fun, which I appreciate might be a very sick way of looking at the world. But, you know, it sounds like a lot of fun. And you get a seat at the table very early on in your career, which struck me as, you know, very similar to what I'd already been doing with that particular student society. So all of those things made me think, oh, actually, this could be quite a good thing to do. So I then research to see who was actually running graduate application schemes, did all the submissions for those, and was fortunate enough to get offered a place on one with a company called Charles Barker, which is now long gone. But it took on four graduates, trainees every year, and had quite a nice one-year program where you were seconded into different divisions. So you might do some consumer PR, some business-to-business they had a political lobbying division as well as a financial communications division as well. And you sort of moved across them. And one of those sort of like comments involved you being in the, the office of the chief executive. So you basically became their bag person for three or four months. And you were at their beck and call. And that was fascinating because you got to see exactly how the agency worked. You got to go to some really good client meetings And you just, again, got an insight into how the business ran in reality. And that was fascinating. And as you say, you know, you recognised early on, didn't you, that the seat at the table, how important that was and how important it was going to be in your career. And so how did you then transition from that role, moving into the different areas, to being purely focused in one area in PR? So that came about through, at the end of the sort of training period, you just ended up in one particular division. I found I really liked doing corporate and business-to-business work. Within that, I particularly liked doing professional services. So working with, we had a number of law firm clients. We had some that were in the recruitment space. We had a couple of management consultants who were our clients, and I think one or two of the accounting firms as well. So working with those clients, I thought, actually, I really enjoyed the intellectual challenge and the rigor of working with smart professionals, but just bringing my particular skill sets to the table, which was in the communication space. And at the same time, I also found, going back to that presentation from the milk round very early on, I liked working on stuff where things had just gone wrong and you needed to find ways of fixing them. And the role that 
good and effective communications can play in that. So that got baked in very early on in my career. There was also a different dimension to it as well, which was almost it's almost like the better looking version of crisis communications, which is what do you do when you've got something which is a fantastic opportunity in front of you and you need to pull together a whole load of different organizations to create a coalition or a consortium or something like that? How do you give that a feel? How do you give that a, a voice? How do you give that a brand? How do you give an identity? And actually, the skill sets are very similar. You're just applying them in a slightly different context. So I did a number of consortium product projects where we were bidding for independent gas licenses at one point to break up the British gas monopoly. And a different one was I was seconded into Virgin for about three or four months. And in that secondment, Virgin was bidding for some of the independent television licenses, which were available at that time. So for East Anglia, for London and for the Southeast. And so they'd created a consortium of companies which had all come together. And that was a particularly intense period you had to create a brand out of nothing because it couldn't just be Virgin. It had to be all the other partners together. And doing that communication, working out what the messaging was, working out how we should be positioning ourselves, commissioning bits of communications material, commissioning ads, everything that try and tells the story about what this consortium has to offer was incredible fun. And a nightmare pace. There's only way you can describe it. Yeah, we're talking at this point, late 80s. I had two mobile phones. I had batteries, you know, on permanent standby and charge. And I just led my life in a circus for that entire period. But we did some fantastic work. And you know, when we launched the bid for these TV licenses, we had Richard Branson and David Frost as our two spokespeople. We got them to stand on the steps of St. Paul's for the opening of you know, the bidding process. We invited a whole gang of photographers there. We got some great shots. And the following day, it was front page of The Guardian above the fold was literally just that photo. And you saw it everywhere else as well. We just owned the communications part of that part of the, the bid process. That's great PR, is it? Well, yeah, it was superb. For you? I mean, that's you're still so early on in your career. Yeah. And you're getting that level of exposure. And also the level of, of um, responsibility is quite daunting, I would have thought. It was certainly a lot of fun. And you don't have time to think about the level of responsibility. It's basically you're just in run mode. And you're picking up stuff afterwards in terms of, oh, okay, well, we just did that then. Yeah, we did. And it's that kind of work is great. I did a similar project. We worked for a, a magazine trade body on a project where the the government was thinking of introducing VAT on newspapers and magazines and those kind of publications, which it hadn't done up to that point. And it could have killed the industry. And so we sat down and had some briefing conversations with the client and they were up for a particularly aggressive approach. So we learned that at Stationers Hall in the city of London, back in the day, and we're talking 17th, 18th century, they used to burn unlicensed publications because it was part of the, the guild and everything else. So to make our point to the government that we were not going to take the imposition of VAT lying down, we dressed up a whole bunch of people in medieval costumes. We got some braziers out, filled them with magazines. We added petrol to the mix, invited the press along. So we had every TV station, we had all the major newspapers, and just basically flicked a match into the whole lot. 
and made a very Amazing. clear point to the government, you know, <laughs> we're not going to take this line down and we're going to create some great visuals that will basically present you as a bunch of burning fascists. Yeah. Yeah, they dropped that idea pretty fast. Five VAT on on magazines and newspapers so some effective campaigning skills did you build really strong relationships with journalists then as well that you were able to use throughout your time i know that you've been able to pull on that haven't you for multiple times when needed certainly it sort of gave you the skills to do it and be able to tell a story and then journalists move around so it's not necessarily always consistent but having that sort of reverse insight into what they were after and how they were looking for a story and being able to talk to them when you've got a really big story then helps when you've got something which may be you know not so strong right but you can kind of think about okay how do we make this work for you the petrol definitely did the trick there did the job (laughs) and you then decided to move on into a law firm yeah what was the decision making process behind that I spent about five years in consultancy and I was enjoying the work. But what I was really enjoying was when you were doing some of those projects, you really got to have that in-depth relationship with the client and get to really know and understand their particular business. So you weren't sort of skitting from client to client to client. And I really liked having that, that kind of relationship and that knowledge about their business. At the same time, I found I was doing a lot of those sort of campaigns. You were working hand in hand with the lawyers. Because the client would have, you know, their legal team lined up, their communications team lined up, and you'd be sort of pushing stuff backwards and forwards between each other and balancing out, okay, what could we do in the courts versus what can we do in the public environment through the media and various other things. So, you know, looking at that holistic approach to solving the problem or fighting a particular battle. And I loved doing that. The idea of going in-house then was very appealing. And the idea of going in-house into a law firm doubly so because I could then combine those two areas at the same time and again I liked working with smart people so you can have some really great conversations with the attorneys and then as you sort of I think said at the beginning they get paid to argue and negotiate all day and I've said to people in the past you know they said why do you like working with lawyers and my answer to that has always been something along the lines of well you can go into a meeting room on Monday and have a conversation about topic x whatever that happens to be And everybody around the table will have their own individual views on that. And as you go through the course of the discussion, they will play individual cards. So someone might play an emotional card, someone might play a logic card, someone plays a precedent card. Everybody is sort of contributing to the discussion in one way or another. And eventually you'll land on an answer. And everyone will go, yeah, okay, we're we're sort of all right with that. Okay, so that's Monday. And off you go. Tuesday, put the same people back in the room to discuss a completely new topic. And the really good lawyers do not carry the baggage from Monday with them. So they might have lost the debate on Monday, but that doesn't mean that they've got to win it on Tuesday. What seems to be what I found with the really good ones I've worked, attorneys I've worked with, is a strong sense of they enjoy the debate. Right. Um, kind of sometimes doesn't matter as long as the voice is heard and everybody gets the chance to sort of discuss it through. And I think that's unique almost to lawyers because the really good ones are able to depersonalize what it is that they're discussing versus what the outcome is. Yeah, the emotional bit as well, as you were saying. So at Nabora, that was a place that you really learned a lot and, and almost evolved, wasn't it, with the business side? Yeah. So I went in there originally with a brief, which was to be both the public relations manager and the commercial real estate marketing or BD manager. So it was a sort of like a hybrid role. And the head of the 
uh, commercial real estate practice, a fantastic guy called Jeffrey Lander. Jeffrey said, if you don't understand our business, you're of no use to me and you can't really help us. So what Jeffrey would do every, I think, yeah, every Monday evening, he would bring together all the various group managers that were sort of working with him across the different subdivisions of commercial property. So you'd have the head of property litigation, the head of planning, the head of real estate finance, all the different sort of subgroups that were doing the, the commercial contracts and everything else like that. And you'd sit there until the job was done or until the meeting was done. And you could be discussing anything in those meetings. So it might be about client development. It might be about associate performance. It might be about utilization. It might be about billing. It might be about recruitment issues. It might be about some of the retention things. It might be about looking at potential partner promotions or lateral hires coming in. I mean, it was a huge agenda. And we did this every Monday, starting at six o'clock until we finish. Wow. And That's a big commitment, isn't it? It was a big commitment, but, you know, it needed doing. But it was fantastic because you'd sit there and you'd learn and you'd absorb and you'd understand the reality of how a law firm works from very grassroots level. And I've said, you know, to others in the past, you know, I was in those meetings for the best part of two years. I mean, you get a mini MBA in wow. how a law firm works in reality. And I think that's something which people who do work on the marketing side or the business development side or the communication side, if they don't have that access and they don't have that knowledge, they're always going to be a couple of steps removed from the day-to-day realities of what the partners are having to deal with, what the business is having to grapple with, you know, the realities of client service, the reality of, you know, frankly, just doing the work. So that insight was invaluable both in terms of that role and pretty much everything else that just come after that. Yeah, it pulled through everything. So it sounded like Jeffrey was quite a visionary in that respect, getting all those people involved. It's amazing. He was fantastic. He really, really was. I mean, he came, it was said of Jeffrey that, you know, he has 10 ideas a day, which maybe one is a good one. Yeah. But, you know, he had the ideas and yeah. he was fantastically talented. He built up some great networks amongst his clients. He even invented something, a firm, I think, called the 100 Plus Golf Club which was for clients who were interested in playing golf, but who were really bad at it. Because actually, most corporate <laughs> golf days, most corporate golf days were aimed at people who were really good. Were really good. Yeah. This was looking at through the completely different lens. You just wanted people who were fancy, you know, knocking a ball around the course for a couple of hours. And so we would do that. And it was called the 100 plus golf club because you had to shoot more than 100 to do a round, <laughs> which is just appalling in anybody's language. And there's an informal policy of if you were starting to regularly go under 100, yeah, well, maybe you're too good for this club. You get kicked out. (laughs) Yeah, you can go play proper golf with everybody else. That's fabulous. Uh, So then you you made a decision to move on for your opportunity. And I think that was when you joined Anderson, wasn't it? Yeah, so beginning, I think it was beginning of 2000, so (laughs) more than 20 years ago. But, you know, it was still relatively advanced in my career. Anderson was looking for a worldwide head of marketing and communications and put that big role. role. Big role, big, right? Big role. And I just liked the look of it. So I'm not quite sure how I got the role, but I did. And it was great because it was working with the, the global managing partner for their network of law firms. It was working with the European managing partner for their network of law firms. It was interacting with the other parts of Anderson. So whether that was the audit side or the corporate finance side or the tax uh, side of the firm. And the brief there was to build the brand for the law firm arm 
and they had put together a whole series of different law firms around the planet. It was more than 25. And the goal there was to be in a position where they could deliver legal services to their clients in a way that was still aligned with the bar rules in each of the various countries. And so we had to find ways of how do you stitch all that together? And so I was doing that with the new managing partner that brought in from Clifford Chance, partner called Tony Williams. Tony and I had both come from effectively, you know, real law firms in the sense of um, the borrowers and he was from Clifford Chance. And actually, we were able to look at this and say, OK, this is what we need to do. And we were able to start talking about what the role of network of law firms was, what its purpose was, how to bring it together, how to serve its clients, what its offering to clients was going to be, how that aligned with what Anderson was offering to its clients. So it was a lot of work. Were you and- not daunted at the prospects? I mean, this is big. <laughs> yeah, it's was big the- stuff. Yeah. Um, but because I had done that work on the in my PR career early with consortiums yeah. and the campaigns, I took a view is actually very similar. You're applying the same skills, the same disciplines in those areas, but you're just now applying it to what was at one point a two and a half thousand attorney law network with all those different operations in different countries. And what was also really good about it was I had a seat on the executive committee. I think I was probably one of only two non-lawyers on the executive committee, and that was made up of the managing partners of all of these law firms around the world. And those executive committee meetings would shift from country to country. I think once every quarter we were somewhere else. So I got to travel to North America, across Europe, into Asia. Uh, I think we had one meeting in Perth at one point. So you got to see the world. And you got to sit down with the people who are running those law firms in those different markets, whether it's Australia or Hong Kong or Singapore or elsewhere, and actually say, okay, how does this work in your market? So you got, again, a real hands-on insight into the global legal industry, how people worked with each other, what the connections were, and how that all came together, again, in practice, as opposed to, you know, sitting in theory or or doing it from the sidelines. And at any stage, did you think this things are looking or going in the right direction with the firm. Could you feel what was starting to happen? I think we're making fantastic progress. I mean, for Anderson Legal, I think at one point, the chair of Freshfields gave a quote to, I think it was the lawyer, saying that, you know, in five years' time, one of those big five accounting firms is going to really dominate the legal market. And I think it's going to be Anderson. Amazing. So, you know, you had that kind of like market impetus going. And then there was this unfortunate thing called Enron, which then acted as a catalyst for the indictment of Arthur Anderson, which inevitably led to the the collapse and the falling apart of all of the component parts of Anderson, including the law firm network. So you then found yourself having done the other set of skills from the crisis management side of things then comes back. Yeah. So I'm thinking, sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, I've kind of seen something similar to this at some point in the past, but nothing on this scale and nothing of this magnitude. So again, the skill sets come back into play, but you're doing it in a very different way to what you might have done in the past. How did you deal with that then? Because, you know, you were inside, as you say, you had a seat at the table, you knew exactly what was going to be happening. You're having to externally push out some of the the communications and deal with it internally and trying to help and save people's jobs or help find people's jobs how did you deal with all of that it was hard and the the way that we approached it the way that I approached it was I had a lot 
very off-the-record conversations with reporters using the building on the, the trust and the relationships that have been built up over a long period of time to help sort of shape their understanding of what was going on internally and try and manage expectations around what a timeline could look like, where certain firms might end up going, what a breakup could consist of, so that the reporting that they were producing was more informed and less excitable as a way of just trying to, again, manage expectations about what was happening inside. Then the other part of it is, from a strategy point of view, you really take the view ultimately that that network of law firms is dead and you shift your emphasis. You're not trying to protect the network, you're trying to protect the people. So you're then doing the work more on the marketing side of helping partners effectively put together packages to help them go and have their conversations with other law firms so that they can you know, spin off and join them. And you know, that may be at the level of the individual, it might even be an entire office, yeah. uh, and sort of working with them in terms of what they need. And again, you know, sort of doing that sort of internal conversation and management of expectations. It was really challenging. And that's the only way to describe it. And we had some situations where, when I particularly remember, we got to one particular point in the UK where we suddenly realised that we had an incoming population of trainee lawyers that wouldn't have anywhere to go. They were currently completing their training contracts or they were due to join as trainees. But the firm that they were in at the moment was not going to exist in a couple of months. It was just going to go. So there were some private conversations out you know, to other law firms in the City of London saying, hey, can you help us here? And actually, that turned into media stories as well about effectively saying, look, we are looking for homes for our trainees. Can you help us? And it was a fantastic tribute to the legal profession in the UK that a lot of firms rallied around and said, yeah, we will take some of your trainees. So that effectively, ultimately, everybody, I think, ended up with a home. Some of the partners from Garrett's was the name of the Anderson firm were saying as part of their conversations with firms that they were going to go off and join. Yes, I'll come and join you, but you've got to bring my associates and a trainee with me. Amazing. So we're sort of wrapping that into the deal. And that proved to be a very successful way of, of effectively sharing the pain across the profession for what I think is still arguably the largest collapse yeah. of a law firm in the UK environment. And then, you know, the bigger, broader international network. But I think it's interesting, isn't it? Like you say there, people were the heart of that and it was people that made it work as well and you know you look at the industry and the profession and that's really powerful and and a positive move from such a horrific situation but again it must have been a big learn for you because even though incredibly stressful as you say and challenging all the time these skill sets are coming skills that you previously but also you are accelerated in that sort of situation aren't you your learns absolutely and I've been very fortunate Tony Williams was a a great individual to work with because he gave you room to manoeuvre. So we would just have a conversation along the lines of, yeah, we need to make sure people know what's going on. And then I'd go and do it. So the amount of trust was significant and the amount of latitude in terms of what we were doing and briefing was immense. And that sort of operational autonomy and the the trust when you're working with those senior members of the team. It's incredibly valuable, something that I think I've been able to carry through into every other role after that, when you're working with those members of the leadership team. Trust is so important, isn't it, when you're working with a leadership team? 
And you didn't take time off after that. You were obviously going, went into some consultancy-based work for a period of time. And uh, then you you made your move again into, it was EY next, wasn't it, that you yeah. moved into, to do, set up a similar sort of firm, the legal basis out of EY. So Ernst & Young had already developed some form of, of network of law firms and it had acquired a number of the Anderson firms as well. I think about 12 or 15 of them as part of the collapse of Arthur Anderson. So it had, it had basically gone shopping around the planet and said, hey, you know, come and join us. You don't want to join Deloitte or whoever, uh, or PwC. So it then built an embryonic, much larger network and then needed to integrate it and articulate why this network was a good network and bring all the firms together and get them aligned in terms of what you know what's the service proposition to the client why should they use us and not you know a clifford chance of this world so effectively it's a rerun of the work being done for anderson and i have to admit i was reluctant to do it because i thought oh, do i really want to do this again and the chair of Ernst young's law network was someone again i'd worked with at anderson he joined them and, and had said to me several times, come on, we're going to do this. We're going to make this work. This is going to be great fun. Come and work with me again. I said, yeah, okay. After about three attempts you know, to persuade me, I said, yeah, okay, let's do this. So I went into there as their head of marketing and communications, almost identical role to what I had at Anderson. What was interesting is that culturally, Ernst & Young was not as integrated as Anderson was. So one step back almost in terms of what needed to be done so again, the work was setting out what's our vision and our strategy for this network of law firms, what's our message to the market, what's our message internally to the rest of Ernst & Young, how do you make that work in practice, how do you do client development plans, everything is in the mix and up for grabs in, in those conversations. So that was a really broad role that I was then sort of working in, uh, and again, part of the executive committee for the network of law firms and reporting in direct to the chair working with him on his own communications and his own meetings with the other lawyers, decide what our strategy was. So it was a, a really, really big role. And again, I think we were in the land of trying to make some traction and achieve that. And along comes Sarbanes-Oxley as a set of regulations. in its tracks. <laughs> uh, and it just stops the whole thing dead. Yeah. Um, and so the conversation then turns into, well, we're going to have to, you know, break up this network of law firms. We're going to have to keep some in certain jurisdictions because that's how you do tax. So, for example, France, it's lawyers who do tax. Um, so, again, that international knowledge starts to, to sort of play yeah. in. And I sort of sat there and went, I don't want to do this. I've done this once already. I don't want to do this again. So I decided I'd step out of Ernst & Young and I would do some more consulting work which I did for a short period of time. And as I was literally just setting up to do my consulting work, I was approached by a mutual friend who said, look, I know the people over at Lovells, and they are in a position where the head of communications is leaving to go join a commercial real estate company. And the head of the press office is heading off on maternity leave. Can you come in and do both roles? Well, yeah, I'd be delighted to. So I joined them. I was, I think, doing three or four days a week covering the two roles. I had a really good set of interview views with the managing partner. I think David Harris interviewed me for about two hours or two and a half hours one evening. And at the end of it said, yeah, okay, let's do this. So it was <laughs> That's not a bad interview process. Not a bad interview process. So, okay, off you go. And the firm has also just been recruiting a new chief marketing officer who is Serena Simmons. 
So Serena and I both essentially joined at the same time, but looking at very different parts of the puzzle. And I came under Serena's umbrella. I had a fantastic, I think it was a year that I was doing this on a quasi-contract basis. And then I worked with Serena to develop a job spec for a head of communications for covering quite a wide territory. And I wrote the job spec and all of those things. And I gave it to Serena and, and various others. And I said, okay, thank you very much. And I remember going home and saying, when I got home, okay, I think this contract's going to come to an end because they're going to go out, go, go out and find someone. Yeah. Okay. And the question was then, you know, are they a good firm? Yes. Are they nice people to work with? Yes. Is the money good? Yes. Why are we even having this discussion? Put <laughs> yourself back in there tomorrow and say you want the job. So I did. And I kind of got the impression from... Serena and others that they've basically just been waiting for that light bulb to go off. You've written the spec, it was basically you. Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah, okay, that'll work. So again, I I was able to take on that role. It was quite a big role again. A lot of travel again in that side. Actually, not too much for that. You've done so much travel previously, haven't you? Yeah, so even Ernst Young. Ernst Young, I think at one point I was in New York once a month. Um, so it was a lot of a lot of moving around. And then with Lovells, it was great to then have that sort of stability almost because consulting life is fun, but it's a bit hand to mouth on some occasions. So again, having that ability to work with a group of people on a consistent basis, build up the team and do a bit of reinforcing in a couple of places. And then that took us into a nice situation as we then encountered the, the merger with Hogan and Hartson in 2010. And that's, again, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think you mentioned that as being one of your highlights and one of your your biggest challenges as well. It it was a huge merger. Absolutely. I mean, it's the I think it's still the largest one ever done. It took two 400-ish million pound slash dollar businesses to create one, which was just under a billion by the time you added it all up. It creates a firm of 800 partners. The scale of the whole thing is just a magnitude above and beyond uh, anything that we'd seen in the market up to that point. But interesting enough, it was because I had that Anderson and Ernst & Young experience, I kind of knew what a global multinational firm should look like yeah, and how it could behave. So a lot of the work that then occurs when you start doing the integration is almost thinking in your head, yeah, it needs to look like this because I know what that looks like and I've seen that picture before how it can work yeah yeah so you had your end goal almost as well you know you weren't having to redefine and and strategize everything there was you'd been you'd done something similar before you knew what the end product should look like almost yeah I had a pretty good feel for it I mean everything is unique depending on the circumstances we had we were able to do a little bit of prep but I think we had to do all the planning and integration work in four months. So I think it's not very long for the side. (laughs) It's not very long at all. And you get this period of time between when you've agreed to merge and then the actual merger taking effect. So you've got this four month window and everything needed doing. The messaging needed doing, the communications needed doing, the internal communications needed doing, planning for launch needed doing, client target identification needed doing. Did you sleep during that four months then? Was there any sleep at all for you? Minimal? Not not very much. Not very much. But that was true for everybody who was involved in that on both sides of the Atlantic. And some bright person had the idea that there should be a countdown clock projected onto the wall inside Lovell's headquarters in Atlantic House in London 
that showed the number of days, the number of minutes, and the number of seconds running down to midnight to, at the beginning of the 1st of May. And every time you pass that wretched thing, <laughs> you have this like chill feeling thinking, oh God, I've like got only 60 days, 30 days, 14 days, seven days, two days. And it was just awful at that, at that level. <laughs> stress level. Yeah. Yeah, you can see it there on the <laughs> But it was quite fun to, and the work itself was immense. Really enjoyable, I would imagine. Really enjoyable. And it, then it takes you back to some of the stuff that you'd done earlier in your career, or I don't know, in my career, which was around right. the consortium bids or similar, where you you get you are against fixed timetables. You have to create something almost out of nothing. You have to bring different stakeholders along with you. You have to keep people informed about what's going on. All of those skills come bouncing back in again. So, you know, when people say, you know, how did you do this? The root skills were developed right back in my 20s on that original work on the consulting side. As you mentioned, the countdown's gone to zero. You've gone live and it was a really successful merger, wasn't it? Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the market reacted well to it. Clients reacted well to it. The people you know, inside the firm reacted well to it. It was a very logical combination. And occasionally I've looked at, is there an equivalent combination out there that would get to the same size you know, in the same period of time and get that alignment between different practice groups and clients. And it's pretty tough. You'd struggle to find something that's got that same weight attached to it, at least certainly in those the early years after the combination. You know, the world is obviously different now. But it looked pretty clear that no one could catch us in terms of what we'd done with a genuinely global footprint, as opposed to a London-centric and then everything else is hub and spoke or New York-centric hub-and-spoke setup, or even a West Coast-based hub-and-spoke. Here with the, the hogan Lovells merger, you had genuinely two in-depth practices on both sides of the Atlantic, and being able to combine them together actually was extremely powerful. And I think it was Legal Business, the magazine described it at one point as the most successful transatlantic merger of all time which is a fantastic validation. Although, yeah, you know, of praise indeed, isn't it? It's good praise. I, I question sometimes as to whether we you know, should take too much stock in what a publication says as opposed to what our clients say. But it's as still a way, good to hear, Chris. Still take still it. Yeah, absolutely. So it was that kind of thing, which was really a really good validation. Yeah. And then subsequent to that, there was a lot of work on consolidating it all together and integrating both the lawyers and the different business services teams. And that's just hard. There's no shortcuts around that. And that took a good five years, six years to get to a point where you had got through the bumpiness of a merger and then all the transition work that gets done on the back of it. And the streamlining that's needed. Yeah, inevitably. With the functions, which is uh, part of the course, isn't it? Yeah. And then that's when you made your move to the US. What yeah, so, that? yeah, thank you. So beginning of uh, 2017, I moved across uh, to the United States based in, here in Washington. And that was a really good move. A number of the senior management team members of Hogan Levels were based in D.C. or in Baltimore. And having worked very closely with them um, by arm's reach or long distance uh, from London, and I'd been traveling backwards and forwards anyway quite a lot. I had inherited a team who were based in the United States as well as in London. So I was working stupid hours. So you might be starting at, you know, every you wake up in, in London and you wouldn't be turning off till 11 o'clock at night in London and, you know, on a bad day going further. 
So actually, it made a lot of sense for me to move across to the United States to establish you know, stronger relationships with my team base there, to work more closely with the management team, and actually to act as one of those pieces of cultural glue in the sense of we didn't have a huge number of business services people making that transition in one direction or the other. Right. So to actually just sit in a meeting room in D.C., sometimes with a bunch of D.C.-based partners, and just talk about what the worldview looks like from London was incredibly helpful. And the same with the business services teams. And then the other way around, you know, I'd be going back to London for meetings and things like that. And you'd be able to say, well, hold on a minute. This is what the view looks like from sitting in, in Washington. So that was, again, quite a powerful sort of ability to do in terms of the discussions. Because, again, your worldview changes. Isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's very different from yeah. different sides of the pond. Yeah. And then you decided that you were going to make another move and you're now yep. in the time that you're in Steptoe. Yep. What was the opportunity for you there? So the opportunity with Steptoe was to take a step, effectively back up again, because I had ended up focused very much on the communication side of things for most of my Lovell's career. But the work I had done at Anderson, the work I had done at Ernst & Young, the work I had done at Nabarro's had all had quite a strong business development element or angle to them. And so what I was able to do with this role is to bring those back to the forefront again and use the skill sets that I have in those other areas, whether it's the, the BD side or the client development side or the strategy and planning side, to use that then in the context of Stepto. The product mix or you know the range of legal services which Stepto provides is actually very similar to Hogan Lovell's. It's strong in the regulatory space. It has a strong IP practice. It has a strong litigation and white-collar practice. So there's actually quite a lot of similarities and you know, in DC, most of the lawyers know each other as well. So mm-hmm. I could sit in an introduction meeting here and say, oh, yeah, do you know Joe Bloggs or whatever? And they go, oh, yeah, 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 he lives opposite me or my children go to the same small school. World. <laughs> it's a small world environment, despite it being Washington. And that's been a really great transition. And I'm really enjoying the work. I've had to rebuild some of the team in a post-pandemic environment. Right. And actually, beginning of last year, the portfolio got expanded. So as well as the marketing and business development team, I also have research and information services. So what other people might traditionally call the library, but it includes a competitive intelligence function as well. And so you're starting to see the connections between what the BD team are doing, what the the CI team is doing, what the researchers are doing. And sometimes they're all approaching the same thing from slightly different angles. So there's clear synergies to be had there and we try and make the most of those when we can so again you know you're helping to to move that forward you're not happy just going into a role and sitting there looking pretty in your role are you you're always wanting to add value and try and look what to develop Vicky I don't think anybody's ever accused me of looking pretty so look at it from the point of view of how do we drive forward the agenda for the firm and actually in some cases what is the agenda for the firm yeah and we have a new chair first woman chair of the firm who started at the beginning of January last year. And it's been great working with her because she's looking at the firm from the perspective of this isn't the same firm that went into the pandemic. It's not the same firm of 10 years ago. And so how do we make that understood internally? How do you then do that with clients? How do you combine that all together? So a really simple, although it was an immense piece of work, was uh, a couple of weeks ago, we brought together 
all of the partners, all the attorneys, and all of the business services team members for the first time ever into one single retreat, uh, which we did in DC. And it was partly to mark the 110th anniversary of the firm, but also to act as a, as a cultural reset for the firm in the post-pandemic world and bring people together in a way that the firm had never done before and have everybody with those different skills, so the partners, the associates, and the business services teams, because they all contribute to the running of the firm. They all contribute to the success of the firm. They contribute to the success of clients. And one of the strongest messages from the chair was that we are all step-toe. It's not one individual constituency. And that's an incredibly powerful message internally, and it's a very powerful message externally as well. That's an amazing thing to do. And I think, again, you know, it's different, isn't it? Which is what makes your firm your firm. And yeah. it sounds like the chair's really engaged in moving the company, the firm forward to the, the next yeah. generation. Exciting times ahead by the sound of it. And um, leading you on to some of your highlights in your career then, what would you class as being your highlights? Certainly that merger between Hogan and Hartson and Lovells. I mean, the amount of work was immense. The different, the complexity was immense. The number of stakeholders was immense. None of it was easy in any way. So I think that was a particularly strong element to it. And actually, the work we did at Anderson in terms of trying to build up a network of law firms on a worldwide basis. And again, you know, what's the message? How do we bring that to life? Who are the clients? How do we reach the clients? All of those kind of things. You know, they're major. You know, I look at those as, as major achievements yeah. uh, along the way. I think massively so. I think, as you say, you know, you look at merging firms and how many times does that go wrong? And for two firms that size to have a successful new firm coming out of it is it's incredible. And uh, what about your challenges then? What have been your, your challenges throughout your career? When I would look at those as the collapse of Anderson was hard. It was hard professionally, uh, in terms of the work that was being done, it was hard personally, because you didn't know whether you'd have a job or not at the back end. And I didn't take a rocket scientist to work out that I knew I wasn't going to have one. At some point, I had to walk into a room with my team and sit them down and say, look, it's all over. I'm going to try to try and find homes and things like that for you. But if you were hoping that there was going to be some sort of rescue, there isn't one. All of those are hard conversations. And the work is challenging at the same time because you're trying to look after their interests, the firm's interests, and indeed, I suppose, you know, your own interests almost went to the bottom of the pile because you're trying to work out, okay, how can you uh, support other people? I kind of knew I'd be okay because I thought, well, I can always find some consulting work somewhere because I'd been a consultant before. So it wasn't an an immense worry, but it's still a bit unnerving because you just don't know whether you can pay your mortgage or not. Uh, and all that kind of thing. I think one of the other challenges, certainly along the way, is that we lost at Hogan Lovells one of our Paris associates in the terror attack that took place there a number of years ago at the theatre. And that was very, very high-intensity work because how do you provide communication support you know, in a major loss-of-life situation? So working very closely with the management team, working closely with the the managing partner on the ground. What do we say to our people in Paris? How do we best support them? So working very closely with the HR team around how do you support people in that situation? How do you respond as an institution to that kind of, you know, senseless violence? 
So it's very, very hard to work out what the right path is. And I think some of the previous experience that I'd had with other loss of life situations was very valuable. And then looking at, okay, so how do we respond as an institution here? And sometimes it's not quite, I wouldn't want to call them, it's the little things, but sometimes little things have great symbolism. And I recall somebody had suggested to me that for a period of time, we simply changed the logo of the firm from green to black on the website as a way of sort of demonstrating our, our mourning for the loss. And I thought that was a superb idea. And we just implemented the change and left it there, as well as you know, responding to you know, the inevitable inquiries we got from journalists and others about, you know, so what's your view on this? It was a hard piece of work, but for very different reasons to you know, some of the other things. Absolutely tragic, as you say. And, you know, you hope that in your career, you never have to put communication yeah. together like that. Very sad. And taking you on then to your words of wisdom, what would you share to... Uh, maybe to, when you're leaving Wales and you're going on to Oxford, what would you share? I think there's a certain amount of just having confidence in yourself and being willing to listen to others, but also having a sense of your own mind on things and then sort of backing that up with the, you know, inevitably with the experience that comes along the way. In terms of dealing with lawyers, I think you summed it up quite nicely at the beginning, which is, you know, you're dealing with people who get paid to argue all day and negotiate and try and find an answer and find a solution on behalf of their clients. And they are quizzical by nature. They want to understand because actually that's how they work. So, you know, a litigator will want to get to the bottom of everything. Yeah. Uh, the same on a transaction lawyer, because again, they're paid to understand the details. And so as a marketing or a business development or a communications professional, when you're engaging with those people, you've got to be prepared for the fact that they will quiz you and you know quasi-interrogate you on what you're doing, why you're doing it in a particular way, what do you think the outcome is going to be, why would we want to do it like that, now, what are the alternatives that we have, because they're exploring themselves to get an understanding for what the options are here, and then you know sitting down and coming to an answer which everybody's comfortable with, and recognising that sometimes you're dealing with individuals who can be quite risk adverse because that's what they do for a living is help their clients manage those risks. So what for you might be a no-brainer because you've done it in a previous industry or in a different firm, you still have to go through that discussion again in order to get people to the place where they're comfortable that this is the right path forward. I think that's great words of wisdom from you there, Chris. And I know that you have really enjoyed your time in law as well as something. Yeah, that definitely. Going back to your mum working for a law firm to present day. Love it. Loving the bits in between as well. <laughs> but there was one particular point in time where my sister was also working in the law firm environment as well. <laughs> really? She still does. And I think we all rolled up unknown to one another at a Chambers launch party and found the three of us all standing in the room going, the hell are you doing here? <laughs> and it was sort of quite quite fun to suddenly realise that it's not quite a family business, but it was starting to head in that Love direction. That. That, that is fantastic. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, hearing more about your story and, and uh, definitely lots of takeaways with people there. So thank you very much. No, thanks, Nick. It's been great.